You're listening to We Resolve to Win, the podcast for women who have resolved by women who seek to resolve conflict in their personal and professional lives and desire to negotiate no matter what. I'm your host, Elizabeth Goh, a lawyer, conflict resolution expert, and negotiation coach dedicated to helping women resolve conflict at work, strengthen their relationships, and negotiate with confidence. Ladies, let's go and be great. Hello, welcome back to We Resolve to Win with Elizabeth Go. Thank you so much for tuning in. If this is your first time, welcome, welcome. You are now officially in the family. I like to call it the winner circle because we as women, we like to win through conflict resolution, communication, and just showing up for ourselves, our families, our friends, and our community in general. If you haven't joined the We Resolve to Win Facebook group, you know I'm always plugging. You can definitely join the negotiation challenge that we embarked upon last month in the month of January of 2020 is still up and will be up until March 31st of this year. So you have several weeks to go back and view videos and to download worksheets and just so that you can gain as much information or ask any questions related to negotiating in your life. So if you are thinking about negotiating your salary, if you're thinking about negotiating your debt, if you have a specific situation in your family that you would like to talk through with your fellow circle family members on the in the group, or if you simply have questions, join the group. We are sharing, we are caring, and it's a safe environment. Everything that you share is confidential and you don't have to put out any specific names if it makes you uncomfortable. But if you talk about your situation from a high level, our goal is to make sure that you are getting all the support that you need. So be sure to join the We Resolve to Win group. If you are listening to this for the very first time, do me a favor and take a screen grab and tag me on social media. If you're not on social media, that is okay. You can feel free to connect with me in another way by sending me a personal email. If you want to have my email address, you can find it in the details link. So be sure to send an email to me using the email address found on the details link in this podcast episode. All right, let's talk about something that has become a buzzword. It's become something that is very popular within certain circles. A lot of corporations are talking about it. Some people are talking about it because they have to. Some people are talking about it because they want to. But it's still an important conversation, irrespective of where you are in the world. We are talking about diversity and inclusion. Yes, DNI, diversity and inclusion. Diversity and inclusion is something that while in my eyes, I think is a wonderful thing, I recognize that for many people, it can raise some discomfort or it can raise a question here or there, or it can actually cause conflict when individuals are not armed with the proper training or armed with the proper information and education on how to manage their conflict. If you are different from your employer, if you are different from your colleagues, if you are different from your employee based on their race, their gender, their sexual orientation, their religious preference, and other areas of diversity, that doesn't mean that you can't work with that person. That doesn't mean that you guys don't have anything in common it simply means that you are different and difference is okay ladies and gentlemen difference is okay so in this episode we're going to talk to 
Kendra Thomas. Kendra Thomas is actually my mentor. She has taught me everything I know about diversity and inclusion. She has trained me in many respects on different facets of DNI, and I absolutely love this individual. So, ladies and gentlemen, if there are any gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, Kendra Thomas. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so delighted to be here that I've been almost in tears since we started talking. Um, because it's wonderful to be back in touch with you and it's been too long. So um, my name is Kendra Thomas and as Elizabeth said, I do diversity and inclusion consulting as well as a whole host of human resources consulting as well. I'm based in Boston with my very bossy, mouthy two-year-old and my husband um, and my lovely dog who's my first child um, and have been here for almost 20 years actually, but grew up in central Missouri. Okay, so when I think of central Missouri, I don't think, I'm gonna be transparent, I don't think that it is the most diverse place or the place that is the most welcoming to individuals of a diverse background. And so I'm curious for our listeners that are also in middle America, what made you decide to move to the East Coast and what is it about DNI that made you interested in even going into this branch of HR, branch of law, or branch of just life in general? Why did you decide to go into DNI? Yeah, the question about staying in Missouri versus leaving is a really hard one. And I grappled with it for years and years because it felt like if I really wanted to make a difference and if I really wanted to walk the talk of what I was saying, then I would stay in Missouri because that's where more work needed to happen. And maybe, maybe I've justified it to myself or maybe it's true, but what I've found is the reality is this work needs to happen everywhere you are. Wherever you have planted your feet, it needs to happen. And it is true that central Missouri is not the most diverse or inclusive place. And those two things are very different. Um, I think it has, just as demographics have shifted, it too has shifted a bit over time. But there's a reason that I left. And it was because I didn't feel like I could do the work there that I personally was passionate about doing. And I originally came to Boston to go to law school. And I chose Boston really specifically because um, the school that I went to, Northeastern, is the, it was at the time, I'm not sure if it still is, the only law school in the country that didn't have grades. Um, instead, you get a narrative evaluation for your work, and I loved that idea. And it also was a very public interest-oriented place. So you had to do a public interest co-op, so I knew there would be opportunities to do social justice work and to do civil rights law. And that's why I came here, and the first time I visited, it felt like home. Um, and Boston has its own struggles with diversity and civil rights and a history that's not particularly inclusive, which is how I sort of came to understand there's no place that is a mecca for this work, right? Because people are people and these issues exist everywhere. So where it comes from for me and the drive to do diversity, equity, and inclusion work it is a question I have been asked my entire life and one that I still do not have a good answer to. I think it's just one of those things that's in you, right? Or it's not. And, and I can tell you growing up in a place that was very homogeneous and where I heard 
racial slurs with more regularity than I would like to admit. Um, I, I was always the kid in the room from the time I was, you know, five years old saying, I don't think you should say that, or that's not right, or that's not fair, right? And I took a, kind of a lot of junk for that from my extended family, and but it, it always just felt wrong. It just felt wrong. And so I wanted to be in a place where when something felt wrong, I could take the next step of acting on it to fix it. And so that's why I'm here. But I'll tell you, even now I'm in my 40s and I have moments where I think to myself, if I had stayed there, would I have had more impact? Because the, the challenges are so much more grave. But I honestly don't know as I could have lived. I don't, I don't know as I could have done this work there. Wow. Okay. So that's a lot to unpack. It's <laughs> a lot to unpack. But I think that I think that's amazing. I think for an individual to reckon first, it takes a lot of courage to be different and to stand out from the crowd or to stand out and think differently from the way that people uh, would like you to think. And it also takes courage to leave what you know. I, I'm pretty sure people could have said, you know, there are plenty of great schools in middle of America. You could definitely go to law school and a multi, you name it, we'll go ahead and have you there and you can do great work out of this particular city or this particular region of the United States. And when I think of someone having to uproot themselves and leave, I think of courage. And I'm so glad you, you mentioned that. And you also mentioned diversity, inclusion, and equity. So I'm wondering for individuals that are not as familiar with those definitions or what makes them different, if you could give us a little education on that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think often people just think of diversity as, first of all, only being about race first and gender second in the United States anyway. I think globally people think about it reverse. People think about it gender first and then maybe race or ethnicity. When I say diversity, I mean a whole host of things. And I think in, in corporate America particularly, if you're not focusing on the whole host of what diversity means, then you're really missing the boat and leaving talent and dollars on the table. So diversity to me is about representation, right? It's about who's sitting at the table. Equity to me is about once you have a diversity of people at the table, are they all being treated the same? Or is one end of the table segregated? And is one end of the table has a much worse view than the other end from the other end of the table? Inclusion is, is next level. Inclusion is not just who are you inviting to the table and are you treating them fairly, which is a, a baseline. That's a floor, not a ceiling. Inclusion is have you set yourself up to make sure that you are getting the best ideas from the diverse folks that you have? Are you leveraging the diversity that you have to really take the next step and create whatever it is for you, better business results, more impact in your community, right? So inclusion to me is a much more, it's harder and it's a much more dynamic and active exercise than it is a passive counting heads sort of exercise, which to me is what diversity is a little bit more. But, but you have to do all three of those things. Um, because one of them alone isn't, it's just not enough. And if you want to be the best in your industry, whatever industry that is, it, all three of them are necessary to sort of fuel your success to the next level. 
So there are many people that would argue that this is reverse discrimination, that by hiring individuals that are much more diverse, that they are missing out on an opportunity to support the company or to work in a particular industry based on the fact that they are male or based on the fact that they are Caucasian. And I think that often people will say it's reverse discrimination based on the fact that they are either uncomfortable or that they lack an understanding. Um, but that's, that's my perception. And I'm curious, as someone that is a true practitioner in this field, what has been your experience with the phrase reverse discrimination? And what are your, your honest thoughts about it? Yeah, so much of this work is it starts in an emotional place, regardless of who you are. And I think those are words of emotion. And I think that I have a particular privilege in doing this work because I'm white. And what that means is that sometimes I can say with unfortunately more authority, I can call someone kind of on their junk when they call it that. And I do think it's junk because it is just the fact that there have been historical barriers put in place for certain groups of people and not for others. And it's it, that kind of damage does not get undone in you know, a year or a decade or a generation. It takes time to undo those kinds of structural um, barriers to success. And so I think we, there's a place for all of us in this work so that's sort of my general thinking about it. I'll tell you when it has come up, how I have practically handled it, it is that there's a seat at the table for everyone. So, so when I have been in organizations where we have started employee resource groups or employee resource networks, very often the first one to start is a women's group or a gender group. And that's because gender is a huge issue that almost everyone has, feels some connection to, and it's global. So usually that's the first and easiest place to start. But as you start a group like that, I have often heard from men who would say to me, um, you know, why is, it, why is this for women? Why are they getting all of these extra professional development opportunities or leadership development opportunities? Or why isn't there a men's group? And my response, my emotional response in my head to that is to get a little bit angry. <laughs> A little bit defensive, but my practical response and what I have said is, come join us. If you want to create a men's group, let's do that. But it needs to have a very clear mission. It needs to have a very clear action plan. It needs to be tied to business outcomes and results. And you need to have enough people to scale it and sustain it. When you have those things, talk to me and we'll build it. And then I generally don't hear from those people again. Because creating this kind of movement, and I think it has to be a movement in order to accomplish social change, um, it, it is hard work. It's really hard work. And what I have found is that very often people who talk about reverse discrimination just need to vent. And it's coming from a place of emotion, but it's not coming from a place of they really believe it and they want to put in the work it's going to take to do what they say they want to do. If people are into putting in that work, I'm in, let's do it. But it needs to be clearly tied to your business outcomes. And usually it's not, usually it, it just is pure emotion. 
Okay. So I, you, you've brought so many things up that I want to address, but I think we'll be here for eight hours if I start to address. Maybe, maybe. Um, so when I think about DNI and I think about the emotions that it stirs with, with diversity and inclusion, I'm wondering what emotions should we tap in in order to do good work and in order to not silo ourselves or in order to not make it about us and make it about others. And the first thing I think of is, is empathy. And I also think of outside of the emotion and actual skill of communication, but I'm not certain while I advocate, I'm not necessarily a practitioner as you are. So I'm curious where there are emotions and where people are uncomfortable and where people are watching different news outlets and they're hearing a lot of different things happening within our politics or even within the boardroom and people are not seeing as much diversity as they want or maybe they're seeing too much diversity in their mind and it's making them uncomfortable what are some skills or what are um, some emotions that they should experience or that you would recommend that they experience in order to survive this type of climate I mean, I, I think this work <clears throat> is work of the head and the heart and the hands. So I am not suggesting and would not suggest that you put your emotions about it in a box and ignore them. You can't, that's not the human experience. And frankly, your, your emotion, the thing that's triggered when an experience happens to you and you think, this is not okay, or I'm really angry about that, or it's sort of the justice nerve, I call it, that gets picked at when something terrible is happening. Those are the things that provide fuel. But if it's only focused on heart alone, it, it doesn't work. So you, I think you don't put those things in a box, but you put them next to as sort of three pillars of this work. Okay, let me take that emotion and how can I fuel it into a strategy that actually makes change, right? So it's the head piece. And then it's the hands piece about how do I put that strategy into action? So I, I think, you know, I would never tell someone what emotions they should feel. I would simply say, feel them, and, but then use them, right? It can't be enough that you just feel pissed off because it's not going to have any impact and not change anything. I would also say this work is, it can be overwhelming because it feels so big. You know, it, 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 people so much larger than us and brighter than us have tried to fix these issues, right? And, and if, if Gandhi couldn't do it, and if Dr. King couldn't do it, right? Nobody can do it on their own and that quickly. So, I think you have to start small. You have to meet people where they are um, and be able to say to yourself, um, so this person doesn't get this, right? They don't get it in the way that I want them to, but what currency can I offer them that they can't accept? It, where can I meet them and then pull them a little bit farther? Which is why this work is hard because it's individual work. It's not, it is individual relationship building and trust because I can't call someone on their assumptions or their bias or any of those things if they don't trust me. 
and I, I'll tell you one of the most impactful experiences I have had in my career was at Pearson where uh, you and I had the privilege of working together and, and having a group that, that we built called the Diversity Advocates. And these are people who sat in Pearson's business, right? They were not HR folks. They were, they were people who were doing work every day and chose to do this on top of their full-time jobs. And having conversations with that group that were challenging and hard and creating a safe space to be able to do that, it was the, has been the reward of my career because when, when one of them felt uncomfortable with how we were addressing something, they could come to me and say, this isn't working for me, or I don't know if I should be an advocate because I feel different, right? I don't, I don't agree with the rest of the team about this thing. And that took a lot of different forms. You know, we had major debates in our group about Rachel Dolezal, right, who is, who is the woman who self-identified as black when the rest of the world saw her as white. And what does that mean? And is she co-opting someone's identity? Is she using it to somehow get ahead? Or is she someone who's on the cutting edge of identity and maybe we'll feel about her the same way we feel about trans folks and you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, right? So, but you cannot have conversations like that that are so personal to people if you do if you have not done the work to create the relationship and the safe space and the trust to have them so that to me is first and paramount and then it's this idea of using heart head and hands all three to actually make change okay uh, two things that you mentioned so much talking i'm sorry I, no it's it's incredible because you're jogging i do remember that discussion about rachel dolezal by the way i remember people saying, I'm not sure how to feel. I want to feel angry, but at the same time, I'm not sure if my anger is misplaced or whether or not she has a right to self-identify as a black woman and not as a white woman. And, you know, and, and some people saying, you know, uh, race is not something you can just, I mean, it got very tense and, and you're right. I think it draws a lot of emotions out of us and it is important for people to create a safe space where people can have discussions amongst themselves. And I think that what ends up happening is that people begin to, because they become so emotional, they are afraid to address the emotion. And instead of addressing the emotion, they either run away, they avoid it, or if they do address the emotion, they become a bit aggressive, if you will. And I recently saw that um, there was a debate that started about unconscious bias, because one person had never heard of this phrase before. And she said, in, in a Facebook group that I'm in, have you heard of unconscious bias? And then people are just using this to cloak their racism. And because I've sat through your trainings, I knew what unconscious bias was. And the conversation escalated in the comment section that people began to um, display anger towards one another. They began to denigrate. They began to call each other names. I was shocked because this was a group of professional women. So I'm wondering, A, um, can you explain what unconscious bias is? And um, B, can you explain how people should conduct themselves, if you have any thoughts, conduct themselves when they are in a conversation and they either disagree with the topic or they disagree with the other person on the other side of the table? 
Yeah. I mean, I, I, this is a topic that, as you know, is very near and dear to my heart. And I would say that unconscious bias is, is part of being human. And it is how our brains are structured and also how we're influenced by the cultures and the societies and the families and the friend groups and, and the online communities in which we live. So the way I have found it helpful to frame it so that it doesn't devolve into that kind of conversation is instead of, you know, going up to someone and saying you're biased, right? Or having this conversation online when you're hiding behind a keyboard to say you're biased, um, is to frame it as fast and slow thinking. And it's a concept that I feel like is easier for people to get their heads around without getting them trapped in the emotion of, I'm not biased, you're biased. Um, and, and it's based on Daniel Kahneman, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist and some of your listeners may have heard of or seen or read the book thinking fast and slow it's a great read but it's very academic and if i could boil it down for you i would just say it basically is based on the fact that our our brains have two systems in them we all have a fast thinking brain and we have a slow thinking brain and you need both of those things and you need to be able to be agile between them. So your fast thinking brain is the thing that makes these quick decisions based on a whole host of things, based on your background, based on the experiences you've had, based on the media that you've taken in, um, as well as just sort of how we're programmed. It's the sort of fight or flight part of your brain. And we rely on it in moments of stress. And when we're triggered, we become even faster thinkers. So when I hear you talking about the comments section, that sounds like a whole lot of fast thinking that got ramped up right into more. And so the other part of your brain system too, the slow thinking brain is the part that's more reflective. It's a little bit more analytical. It's able to take a breath and take a step back and say, wait a minute, why did I just go there? But that's hard to do in the moment when you're triggered by emotion. I will say for, for me, I'm a naturally fast thinker. And I have had to learn over time how to slow myself down. It doesn't come naturally to me. It is intentional. And I have to think about it all the time. And so I've had to train myself to not just say any old thing that comes into my brain, because that's how I am. <laughs> And so I, I and, and I would say it's been my biggest professional development it is learning how to do that because I think if you or your listeners think about the best leaders you've ever had, I assure you that they are people who are able to move back and forth between fast and slow thinking as the situation requires it. They are people who are able to, you know, speak up and make a quick deadline and make decisions and all of those things that we view leaders as being able to do. But they also are able to step back and say, wait a minute, let's rethink this. It may not be going well. And so your second question about what advice I would have for people in that moment is to practice slow thinking and, and to call other people on it. So I own the fact that I'm a fast thinker. I tell everyone I know I'm a fast thinker. You may have to slow me down, right? And it takes, like you have to eat some humble pie sometimes if you fast thought and jump to a conclusion. And it works in your personal and your professional life. Literally last week, I had to send my husband a text six hours after we had a conversation and say something like, 
I was thinking about the thing I said to you earlier this morning, and I think I jumped to a conclusion. You should do whatever feels right to you, and I'm okay with that, right? Like, I'm sorry that I went automatically there. But a few years ago, I wouldn't have done that. I would have just fast thought, said to him, absolutely not in the moment, and gone on with my life and never had the moment to reflect, and we'd be worse off for it. And I think that that's true in professional relationships as well. Absolutely. Wow. I love that. I love the concept that it's a a personal development and it's a professional development to pause and recognize that perhaps you are a certain way and that way isn't the only way to be and that way isn't always the correct way. And I think a lot of people struggle with apologizing. And I think people struggle with recognizing that they're wrong because of the culture that we have, at least within the United States. We have a culture that we want to be ones that we beat our chest. We want to have the last word. We want to be the correct voice in our room. I mean, we see it in our presidential offices. We see it in our politics. We see it in the boardroom. We see it even down into families. And I think that when we recognize the importance of being different and we recognize the importance of recognizing that we aren't the same as other individuals that takes courage and it also takes recognizing that while we are different we aren't always right and i love that you also you were able to give a real life example and so uh, i guess one last question that i have for you is if someone is listening to this podcast and they are saying to themselves, I'm not in the United States. I may not necessarily be a diverse person. Um, Everywhere I look, we aren't openly talking about this. What would you say to that individual or, or how can that person begin to champion change in their lives, in their workplace or within their communities if they are someone that is not as exposed to diversity and inclusion and equity as you are? Two things. I first would say really flex your listening skill. That muscle is so important and we're so bad at it because we think we listen and we don't listen actively. So it is the reflective listening. And I think even if you're in a place where conversations about these issues are not happening, people are thinking about these issues. And they may not culturally be in a place to talk about them or just personally, they might not feel comfortable. So I would say the more you listen to your colleagues, um, and then the second part of that is ask questions about their lives in a respectful way, you start to learn more about them right? And you start to create the safe space for people to have conversations where and when they want to. I I think that, you know, we haven't talked a lot about gender, but we could talk about any of these things forever. I think that this is an area where women professionals especially have serious skill and have been taught not to practice it. Wow. We can be really good listeners and we're good at asking questions and developing relationships, but our corporate cultures have often said to us, beat the chest, 
be the first person to talk, right? You know, don't listen because that's weakness and admitting you're wrong is weakness and you need to be the subject matter expert. You need to be confident, move forward. But listening to other people and then asking reflective questions about their experience does not make you weaker, <laughs> right? It doesn't, it, this, I hate it that we call them soft skills even because to me, they are the necessary skills of a 21st century workplace. Um, but we don't teach people to listen. And if they do it well, naturally, we sort of tamp it out of them. I also would say as parents, it's critical that we do this. And I would say particularly parents of boys, because boys are not, boys are taught that it's not okay to listen and be reflective and be interested in other people and build very strong relationships. Boys, even more than women, are taught to, you know, bang their chests and be the loudest voice in the room. And it doesn't really help any of us. Wow. Okay. So this is going to be part one because I have so many more questions. <laughs> I have so many more questions. And again, I, I can't, I can't hold you up for uh, eight hours, but uh, th this is, I, I love that, that you said, be a good listener. I love that you talked about unconscious bias. I love that you talked about courage and you talked about uh, slow thinking and fasting. I love all of that because I was able to, based on the fact that I've gone to so many of your trainings and I've learned so much that I was able to, and, and many of the listeners will know this because they heard the episode, I was able to have an in-depth conversation with someone that identifies as non-binary. I don't think three to four years ago, I would have comfortably been able to do that. I think that I would have had a lot of assumptions that, that were obvious, that would have been incorrect. And I think that I would have gone into any conversation with someone that identifies as non-binary, trans non-binary um, with fear and, and with a lot of um, assumptions. And so because of those trainings and because of that exposure, I was able to have a conversation with B. Uh, uh, Pagel's minor and it was a brilliant conversation. It was wonderful. And I think that so many people need to recognize that unconscious bias is real. Many people need to recognize that there are some unlearnings that we have to do. Um, and especially as women, that we are naturally skilled and gifted in certain ways. And it's okay to bring your most authentic self to the workplace. And I think many people talk about that. But in reality, that the culture, as you say, of corporate America and, and workplaces, it beats it out of us. So but it's and it and the fear piece that you addressed is actually really important. It's it's uncomfortable sometimes if you have a particular fear to ask someone a question about their personal life. Right. But people are so open to it because everybody wants to bring their best selves to work and to their relationships, but they don't always know if it's safe. And probably the most rewarding thing I have done in my career is help employees who are transitioning genders do that in a workplace in a way that's respectful. And it, it's not a huge initiative. It doesn't impact thousands of people in an organization, but it is one person saying to me, this is the thing I was most afraid of. I was out and transitioned in the whole rest of my life, but I was so afraid to do it at work because I knew I could legally be fired for it, right? It's, it's powerful to have those sort of one-on-one -on -one interactions and doing that work 
um, with gender identity particularly has taught me it's okay to ask questions, right? It's okay to say, I might mess up sometimes. I might use the wrong pronoun. I'm sorry about that. I'm learning, right? And my experience has been that the other person is just so happy to be talking about it and engaged in an honest, authentic, trusting dialogue. We're able to forgive mistakes as we're learning and growing. I think the same is true for race. I think the same is true for gender. When, when men and women at professional tables can have a true conversation about how gender shows up at work, powerful things happen. Um, but it takes a long time to get there and you have to be willing to take a little bit of a risk. And that's hard. Kendra, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. I love you so very much. Can you please let us know how to get in contact with you? Yes, absolutely. So you can find me on LinkedIn for sure. If you want to have a more individual conversation, I always love doing that. Um, you can also reach out to me at emergentgrouphr at gmail.com. So that's emergentgrouphr at gmail.com. Excellent. Thank you so much, Kendra. Thank you. Thanks for joining me on this week's episode of We Resolve to Win. But don't worry, the fun doesn't stop there. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter at We Resolve to Win. And you can join our free private Facebook group where we share success stories and strategies on negotiating and resolving conflict in all areas of your life. Until next time, be well.